0: Welcome to the connect church podcast our mission is to connect the disconnected to a growing relationship with god you can connect with god and we can help so a number of years ago I heard a knock at the door and as I looked up it was my roommate Ryan and he said hey man can I come in so we can talk and I said sure so I motioned him in and as he sat down he started off by saying Nate there are some things that I want to share with you because I care about you and I think you should know so immediately my defenses went up and I thought okay this is gonna be Ryan bringing up some moment where he was overly sensitive however I should pay attention for fear of offending him and what Ryan should have said right off the bat was Nate You're a prick, in much stronger language than that. However, Ryan is very gracious, so that's not what he said. Instead, he started off by saying, Nate, you don't use your words kindly. You carry yourself with this hard edge as if your way of saying and doing things is the only way. And personally, it's been hurtful. Everybody in the house is walking on eggshells, scared of what you'll think, what you'll say to them, And what Ryan was getting at was not just an isolated incident. Instead, he began to tell a series of stories that created a pattern of behavior in me, which was the fact that I used my words to tear others down, not build them up. And he was absolutely right. There was a season in my life where I was beyond opinionated. In fact, I was ruthless with how I used my words. See, I've, I've always been a pretty driven guy. I like to achieve big things. And when I don't, when I fall short, I hate myself for that. And so, if I feel little in that moment, the easiest way or the fastest way to make myself feel bigger is to little others. And so I would use my words like daggers to cut them down. However, in the moment I wasn't really interested in that conversation. So I started to move the conversation to a close and I just said, um, well, do other people our other roommates, do they feel the same way as well? And Ryan said, yeah, man, pretty much everybody does. And he thanked me. He said, thanks for hearing me out. And he walked out. So on this Palm Sunday, we're going to be talking about the power of our words to either build others up or to tear them down, and we're going to look at the example that God's Son Jesus left us for how to use our words wisely. That's the series that we've been in, in Proverbs, and we're going to do this message in two different parts. So first, we're going to look at three truths about the power of our words that Scripture gives to us, and then we're going to look at the example of God's Son Jesus for how we should use our words wisely, and we're going to come back to one particular proverb. We're gonna go through a fair bit of scripture. So just as Tyler mentioned, if you haven't downloaded the app, check out the message notes there, follow along with the slides. But here's the proverb that we're gonna come back to time and time again, and it's Proverbs 18, 21. It says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. So here we go with part one, three truths about the power of our words that we find in scripture. So in Hebrews eleven three, the writer says this, By faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And what the writer is pointing at is truth number one, and that's that our words have the power to create and bring life or to destroy and bring death. And the author is referencing the creation story, which takes place in Genesis. And it says in the beginning, God created. And the tool that he used to cultivate our world was his speech, his words. And so there's this pattern that develops. God speaks it was made so, and it was good. God speaks, it was made so, and it was good, over and over again. And so he uses the power of his words for good. However, we also see in Proverbs 18, there's this contrasting reality, death and life as well. So also in the creation story in the garden, we're introduced to a different character, and that's a serpent who's slithering through the garden, which is Satan. In John 8, Satan is called a liar, the father of lies. And so the exact same tool, words, but for a very different purpose. Satan introduces deceit, death, despair in the garden as well. Same tool, very different outcomes. It's like what one of the most influential atheists of all time, Friedrich Nietzsche, said, all I need is a sheet of paper and something to write with, and I can turn the world upside down. This from a man who declared God is dead, and with it, he pointed out a world full of nihilism, existential despair, moral ambiguity, and I think that's very interesting. Again, exact same tool. Very different purposes, very different outcomes. And I think that leaves us with a pretty incredible responsibility. There's this quote that I like from J.K. Rowling. She was the author that wrote the Harry Potter series. And her words are, words are our most inexhaustible source of magic, capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. Two different outcomes, we have a choice. In scripture, there's a metaphor for this or a visual that we're given. In Ephesians 6, as the writer is listing out the armor of God, in referring to the word of God, we have the visual or the picture of a sword. And if you think about a sword, there are two edges to it. And this points back to this first truth. Words have the power to either create life or to bring death. How will we choose to use ours? And how we answer that is a very important thing, because here, here's point number two. Our words aren't temporary. In fact, they're an issue of eternity. One of the early influencers in the American Civil Rights Movement. His name was Rabbi Joshua Abraham Hirsch, and he was quoted as saying, words do not fade. What starts as a sound ends in a deed. And I like this point because what he's saying is that our words echo out into eternity. Our language has the ability to shape our lives and how we live. And it's a pretty heavy reality because just like my words to Ryan, once we speak a clumsy or a destructive word, that can't be forgotten. It can only be forgiven. In Matthew 12, it says this, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak for by your words, you will be justified and by your words will be condemned. I think that's pretty interesting as well because oftentimes we think about our behavior, our actions. However, it's only words that are pointed out in Matthew 12 here. So it's a weighty a rather eternal reality. How will we choose to use our words? Andy Hunt was a community college teacher. He taught music at a small college in Central California back in the 80s. Every year, students would register, they would enroll to join his class, and he would see about 100 students come and go. In one particular semester, he saw a student named Edward walk into his class. Edward was a rather tall fellow, well over six feet. However, he, he carried himself very sullen, sunken. As Andy would watch him interact, he would stay very shy, reserved. He didn't really converse with the other classmates. He would show up late routinely. He would turn in homework that was well under a college level. Routinely, he got Ds, even Fs, on many homework assignments. And as Andy would see him around the campus, he would look at him oftentimes sitting alone, eating ham sandwiches by himself on the quad. And Andy couldn't shake this feeling that he needed to get to know Edward. But he was a teacher and, you know, there are certain boundaries and he wasn't sure where the line between the personal and the professional lay. But throughout the whole semester, he couldn't shake this feeling. I need to get to know Edward. Well, the semester came and went. Finals were there. And after finals, students were getting ready to line up at Andy's door at his office to collect their report card. This was before grades were posted online. So Andy is getting nervous. He knows that he's going to have to give Edward the grade that he earned, which is a failing grade. And so his stomach is churning and he's waiting and watching all of the students come and go collect their grade and no Edward. So he waits for another hour, hoping that Edward would show up and eventually he decides he's gotta go. So he starts locking up his office and that's when Edward appears. And Edward shows up and he says, Mr. Hunt, I'm sorry, I'm late. I also know that I'm nothing like the other students. I know I failed, so I'll just take my grade and I'll go now. And what Andy did next is pretty remarkable. So he opened up his office and he asked Edward to come in and he said, Edward, sit down, Um, here's your grade. He handed it over and as Edward looked down, he saw an A, big red A marked on the paper. And Edward said, but Mr. Hunt, I didn't deserve this. I know I failed. And what Andy told him next was, Edward, you may be D student, but you are an A person. I believe in you, I always have believed in you, and I always will believe in you. And see, Edward that day, he was late because he was busy writing out an apology letter. An apology letter that was actually his suicide note because he came from an incredibly verbally abusive household. He had a brother who was very high achieving and who always used his words to cut Edward down to let him know that he wasn't going to live up to much. And so Edward that day, he had written out his letter and then he went to collect a grade that he believed would confirm what he already knew, that his life wasn't worth much. And yet Andy's words changed the course of his life. They had not temporary, but rather eternal implications or consequences. And that's the second point. Our words aren't an issue of here and now, but they're an issue of eternity. How will we choose to use them? And that is Also, an incredibly important point, because words reveal the condition or the character of our heart. In Luke 6.45, it says this, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So, as Christians, we're called to stand out in the world. We know this. And one of the primary ways that we're called to stand out is by our words. We should be known and marked or characterized by gracious and loving words. So in Proverbs 16, it says this, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. And I love that visual. Think about eating honey. Think about a conversation that you've had recently, maybe with coworkers or with neighbors. How cool would it be if somebody described a conversation with you like eating honey? Man, I love talking with Zach. Conversations with him is like eating sweet, sweet honey. Now there's also an alternative here And that's Romans 3, 13, which says, their talk is foul, like the stench of an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies, snake venom drips from their lips. Like, whoa, that's pretty serious. If you think about the contrast between those two, honey and venom, now consider a conversation that you had in the last week. It could be any conversation, whatever sticks out and comes to your mind. If you were to think about the perspective of the person that was on the receiving end of that conversation, How would they characterize your words? Is it more like honey, more like venom? And again, how you choose to answer that is a very important thing because it points back to this reality like it says in Matthew 15, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart in this defiles a person. Our words reveal our character, the inner condition of our heart. Now there's a children's story to maybe bring it to a bit of a lighter note that I think captures all of these different truths very nicely. And It's about a group of toads who are hopping through the forest and one day as they're hopping along, one toad falls into a ditch. It's a rather tall, it's a muddy ditch and so this toad is trying to jump out and as he's trying to jump out, he hits the wall and slides back down. Now all the other toads, they don't really care for this one toad and so they tell him, well we would just be better off if he would stay down there. Don't even try, stay down there. So now the toad is trying even harder, putting even more effort into his jump. He's getting closer but still he doesn't quite make it. He slides back down at the bottom of the ditch. So now the rest of the toads are really frustrated, so they're yelling even louder with more vigor, just stay down there and die. We would be better off if you didn't even come out. So the toad in the ditch tries one more time, puts all of his might, all of his energy into one last jump, and he makes it. He makes it out, and the thing is that toad in the ditch was deaf. The whole time he thought that everybody else outside of the ditch was encouraging him Yelling words saying, come on, we want you to climb out of this ditch. Now, the people in our lives, they're not deaf. They are surrounded by the noise of our culture. However, they hear us very plainly. And I think they need us to be yelling God's message of love with the same level of conviction. Easter is a great opportunity. Today's Palm Sunday. One week, just like Tyler mentioned, we have the opportunity to share God's message through our words with our neighbors. And that's the first set of points One, our words have the power to create and to bring life or to destroy and to bring death and how we choose to use them is a matter of eternity. So it's very important as it also reveals the character in our own hearts. So death and life, this is Proverbs 18, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So it's a pretty big deal. Our words have a lot of power. And the question then is, well, who do we look to? Who's the role model or the example that we should be following? And of course, The answer is Jesus. So, we're going to look at a series of stories, a series of examples from Jesus' life and how to use our words to build others up, not tear them down. So, in the Gospels, we're left with this example, and it starts off by describing Jesus in Luke, 422, as this, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? They were amazed by his gracious words. And again, I find that very interesting because Jesus was a man with a track record of many miracles, but here in Luke, when they're talking about Jesus, they're referring to his gracious speech. So what were those principles? What, what about the way Jesus used his words was so remarkable? So here's the first thing. Jesus always used his words to bring life and to build others up. In Ephesians 4.22, we have the call to let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear." So there are a a number of different stories. I'm going to call out three from Jesus's life that shows how he used his words to build others up. So those three stories that we're going to look at is of Lazarus, a leader in the Roman army, as well as a lame man. So in that first one, Jesus brings Lazarus back to life with just a couple words. In John 11, it says, When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. This is incredible. Lazarus is so dead, he is literally prepped for burial. It says he has strips of linen and a cloth around his face, and yet it's just two words from Jesus come out, and he comes back to life. Now, in the next example, Jesus encounters a centurion. A centurion in the Roman army was somebody who had at least a minimum of 100 soldiers under his command. And as this centurion encounters Jesus. It says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. So last one, a lame man. Now, the context here is this layman is laying next to a fabled healing pool. Back in the day, there was a belief that if you entered into a certain pool at a certain time of day, then you would be healed of whatever physical ailment needed curing. And so in John 5, it says one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Almost four decades, this man is sitting there hoping to find life, to find healing. And Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? Which is kind of a funny question, It seems rather obvious, but do you want to get well is his question. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And so if you, if you caught this, this theme throughout all three stories, Jesus' ability to bring life through his words are far more powerful than death, than one of the greatest militaries of all time, and through the fabled healing pools of the ancient, ancient days. So Jesus' words held power to bring life. Now here's the second principle that Jesus le- leaves with us throughout his life is that he deeply understood others. He knew how to shape his words to fit and fill the emotional void that was at the center of the person that he was talking with. All of his interactions were deeply steeped empathy. Now a few summers ago, my wife Erin and I, we were out for a run on the Cherry Creek Trail and we were running with this beautiful four-year-old chocolate lab named Bell. And one one of our friends had gotten an internship for the summer. He was Bell's owner. That internship required that he go and he travel and so he couldn't watch Bell and asked if we would. So we said sure and we were out for a run and Erin was just loving this summer. If you know anything about her, she will tear up while watching Instagram videos of senior dogs. I've never seen her tear up at one of my videos, but she can't get enough of dogs. You should also know that by this point in the summer, she had started referring to herself as mom when talking about Belle, which technically that would make me dad, but that would give Belle two dad. So she just called us a modern family. And so <laughs> we were a modern family for the summer with Belle. These were all things that I should have considered when Erin turned to me and asked, So now that Bell's been staying with us for the summer, when it comes to us getting a dog, are you feeling more excited or about the same? And if you listen to how Erin phrased the question, less wasn't even an option. She was very intentional in how she provided me those two things. And all of that went right over my head. So when I answered her with about as much sympathy as a sack of jalapenos, I said, well, less, I'm actually less interested now. So she ground our run to a halt and she said like, how? How is this possible? And so, I replied very matter-of-factly that I wasn't interested in the logistical implications of dog ownership. I found that rearranging our schedule to accommodate a dog was rather frustrating and inconvenient, and so I just let her know exactly how I was feeling. And She didn't take too kindly to that because I had totally missed all of the emotion in a question that was deeply important to her. See, in her mind, she was picturing our future, and in that future, she wanted the love and affection of a dog, and I had immediately squashed that. So don't do what I did, instead do what Jesus did. So in, in Luke 19.5, we're given the first example of how Jesus deeply understood the individual that he was connecting with, the person that had a, a particular set of hopes, needs, fears, dreams. So in Luke 19.5, it says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now, these were Jesus's words to a lonely, isolated tax collector. See, back in that day, the uh, Roman Empire would have a member of the people go out and serve as a tax collector to take tolls from everybody. But tax collectors, they typically would pocket some of that for themselves. So they were hated. They weren't trusted. And that was at the center of what Zacchaeus needed. He was lonely. He was isolated. And if you look at the words, that Jesus used in connecting with him, he said, I must stay at your house today. I wanna to come keep you company. Now there's a second example in John 8:7, where it says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. See, these are Jesus's words on the behalf of a condemned woman who was living a life of unfaithfulness. And as the Jewish people had lined up, they were ready to literally stone her, to throw stones at her. Jesus's words were, well, any of you who is without sin, you can throw the first stone. And so he let this woman know that she was not lesser than her accusers. He deeply understood the person that he was connecting with. He didn't miss the emotion, but instead he shaped his words to fill an emotional void that was at the center of the person that he was speaking to. And I think that's a great example um, for us as well, because while Jesus lived in an oral culture that was filled with storytelling, he didn't need long speeches in order to land his message. In fact, some of his most impactful moments are preserved in the single sentences that we have here in scripture. So finally, let's add to our last point that we see in the principles that Jesus left us in his life. And that's in a very contrasting way. He wasn't shy about calling out evil with candor. There were moments where he pulled zero punches because this is the flip side to bringing light into the world with our words. It's we're also called to battle the dark, to push back sin and Satan. So, in Matthew 23, Jesus is listing out his seven woes on the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And it goes something like this in verse 13, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Now, keep in mind, in context here, Jesus is talking to people of immense power and privilege in the ancient culture. These were literally the leaders who were responsible for leading people to a certain way of life so that they would enter the kingdom. And Jesus calls them a hypocrite. And he says, you yourselves will not enter. He pulled zero punches when talking to them. There's another example that I love because you see Jesus get a little spicy here. He's fiery. When he walks into the temple, he finds people selling livestock, exchanging money. And in John two, it says, so he made a whip out of cords, and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables to those who sold doves. He said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market." If you've never seen the series, The Chosen, it's a uh, reproduction of Jesus's life. And there is an incredible scene of this. It's powerful. When you recognize that Jesus was able to balance the power of his words, not only to bring light and life into others, but also to battle the dark and to push back sin and Satan. And that's the big idea here. Just like in these examples, countless others from Jesus' life we're called to do the same, to use our words to build others up, not to tear them down, to think about the eternal implications of how we are using our words to guide one another's lives. And so back to my conversation with Ryan. After a few weeks went by, the Holy Spirit had some time to work on my heart, and by the grace of God, I began to realize that Ryan was absolutely right that my heart needed to change and that my words had revealed something that was rather venomous, more like snakes venom than like honey. And I am so incredibly thankful that Ryan chose to use his words to call me out like that, that he had the courage and the candor to let me know that how I was using my words was very harmful, because now I'm married, I lead people in the workplace, and I can't imagine the consequences that would still be at play and rippling out if Ryan hadn't used his words to correct my own. And so without overstating it, I think Ryan's words very literally changed the tra- trajectory of my life, and I'm forever grateful for that. So I think it's a, it's a good thing to consider. How will you use your words this week? Will you use them to, just like the double-edged sword, to build others up and bring life, or to tear them down and to bring death and destruction? So maybe think about a conversation that you'd like to have. Maybe it's with a particular person who might have been knocked down lately and you can use your words to encourage them and pick them back up. Or maybe you were the person who was knocked down. You're not feeling great about it and you need to, in a moment of courage, use some candor and call them out and let them know that those words were rather hurtful. Because it's an immense power and privilege that we all have. Our words carry weight and we can choose how we want to wield them. And when done for the Kingdom, for Christ, It's one of the best ways that we have to connect the disconnected to a growing relationship with God.